Hello, thanks for listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. This is Adam Rosen, your host. I'm a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement. In these episodes, I'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs. Thanks for tuning in and on with the show. Hello, welcome back. This is Adam Rosen. You're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. This is the 97th episode, uh, so thanks for tuning back in. I had some feedback from the last episode. Um, in the beginning, I had really tried to avoid specific implants, uh, but actually there was some positive feedback on things that I was able to share about the hip implants. So I've been compiling a list um, of knee implants and just things that I've used over the years, um, things that I like, things that I don't like, uh, things that I look for. So that'll be coming up in a, in a further episode. Uh, today's episode, what I want to talk to you though about is knee arthroscopy. And just to share some of my little tricks and tips on how I choose the right patient to operate on and what I do intraoperatively, uh, and also something that I'd like to share with you that I recommend for young surgeons when you're in your boards collection period. And again, I'm a joint surgeon, so basically all of my patients are over the age of 55 coming in the door, but I still have a number of patients that don't need knee replacement that may be a surgical candidate uh, due to a meniscus tear. I am of the camp uh, that is not for operating on every single patient that comes in my office with an MRI with a meniscus tear. Why? Based on the data, there's a fair number of those people that don't get better. And I see a lot of the second opinions in patients you know, that may have seen their primary, had an MRI, no real weight-bearing x-rays, orthopedic surgeon sees them, offers them a meniscectomy, and they don't get better or even, unfortunately, worse, they feel worse after the surgery and they come into my office unhappy and they say, well, the doc operated on me. He made me worse and told me now I need a knee replacement. So I want to kind of share with you what I go through and, and what I think is the appropriate way to go through taking care of these older patients that come in with knee pain where you suspect a meniscus tear or maybe they've already had the MRI because I'm sure you've heard all of us complain about all of the unnecessary MRIs or MRIs that get done as the first test or MRIs that get done after non-weight-bearing x-rays when we still all believe these patients walking in the door, whether or not you had an MRI, are still going to get a complete set of weight-bearing x-rays, which include specifically both the AP standing and a Rosenberg view. Um, and if you haven't already, go back and listen to the uh, podcast where I do talk about the original article on the Rosenberg view, because it was very... Um, Interesting. I, even when I read it, I had never read the article up until that point. But it's amazing how many patients we see with a fairly normal-looking joint space on the AP, and then on the Rosenberg view, they have grade four changes. So when I see people that come in, you know, for knee pain, there is the you know initial workup of okay, this patient doesn't have bone-on-bone arthritis. Maybe they haven't had anything done yet. We've gotten X-rays, and the joint space is well maintained. Uh, whether or not they had a twisting injury or, again, just stepped off a curb or woke up in the middle of the night and twisted their leg um, in the in the sheets. And that idea of that a degenerative meniscus may just tear, a lot of times I'll try to explain to people that it can be a normal process of aging, that it's sort of like that rubber band that you might have sitting in your 
in your um, desk drawer that you don't overstretch, but you just stretch it a little bit to wrap up something and it breaks. And the meniscus can just break sometimes when it does get older and degenerative and it may cause pain in some people. So you want to go through, are they overweight? You know, can they lose weight? Is that going to help their knee symptoms? How much of it is meniscal and how much of it is degenerative? Can they do some form of exercise like straight leg raise exercises, pool exercises, swimming exercises, other types of things? I find that most of these patients, if they have acute pain, usually if they get sent to therapy, it's not that therapy did anything wrong, but if they haven't done any exercise and they start with an aggressive therapist, that can sometimes make things worse. So I tend to reserve formal physical therapy for patients that are improving but have plateaued on the home exercises and a course of oral medications. You know, a lot of these patients come in because they're in pain and they have inflammation. And again, it's hard to tell how much of the pain is from the actual arthritis, um, how much of the pain is from the meniscus tear or other issues. So in those patients, we're talking about still starting with a course of oral NSAIDs if they can take them. Um, And then if not, those are patients that I might offer a cortisone injection, say they're on Plavix or Pradaxa or Eliquis, maybe they can't take a course of anti-inflammatories, I might offer the injection at that visit versus someone that can take anti-inflammatories, I'll usually say, go home, take your anti-inflammatories first, and then if you still have symptoms after that, plus the home exercises, come back and we can then take the next step of a cortisone injection. And for me... um, That patient that now presented in my office had weight-bearing x-rays, had joint space remaining, um, tried these conservative care measures, still is not improved. That's where I personally will order an MRI if the MRI is not done. Now, again, going into this, the most important thing, and I probably should back up to the very beginning because we're taking, I'm not going to go into detail on the history, but you really need to take a good history, but the good physical. So if we talk about the physical exam, the things that I look for, um, in the physical exam, and this is where you need to have good hands, is you really need to feel where they have pain. I think many primaries, you know, anything on the medial side of the knee is a medial meniscus tear, and anything on the lateral side of the knee is a lateral meniscus tear, but you're a surgeon, and you need to be more specific. Just like if you were on your cardiology rotation and you were working with a very good cardiologist, you don't just listen to the heart. You auscultate different areas of the heart with the patient at different positions, inspiration, expiration. And you're looking for listening for a valve and listening for a particular thing. And the same thing holds true in the knee, that when you examine the knee, let's just say on the medial side, um, you're, you're feeling, is it the medial collateral ligament insertion on the femur? Is it the tibia? Is it the pes? Is it the medial femoral condyle? Is it osteophyte on the medial femoral condyle? Is it the tibial plateau? You know, which part of the tibial plateau? Is it anterior? Is it posterior? Is it the actual joint line itself? You know, do they have an Apley's? Do they have a McMurray's? You know, even the extensor mechanism. And is it the quad tendon? Is it the insertion of the quad tendon on the superior pole of the patella? Is it the patella itself? You know, is it the inferior poles, the tubercle? And the same holds true on the lateral side. And then you're incorporating the IT band. You know, posteriorly, Baker's cyst. Is it hamstring? Is it gastroc? So there's all those different things that when you feel the knee, you should not just be touching it, but you should be actually feeling specific things in your mind, you know, is that the pain and is it reproducible and what is that anatomic structure that can be causing pain? Because, you know, if I have a patient where I push on the medial femoral condyle and they're in pain, medial tibial plateau, they're in pain, push on the joint line, no pain. Even if they have an MRI with a meniscus tear, their symptoms most likely are from the bone and from the arthritis. Now, if they have tibial pain and joint line pain, a lot of those people can get reactive bone marrow edema 
And that can sometimes go away if they have a large meniscus tear that is irritating the tibia. So you'll see that on the MRI, uh, but it's really important to, f- to feel, and when you're touching those structures, is to really get an idea of where they hurt. Because a person that doesn't have reproducible pain on the joint line, all the pain's on the bone, and it's exquisite. Those are the patients that usually have an MRI that has bone marrow edema. And in my experience, those are patients that rarely get better, more often get worse. Um, but you have to be thinking about this when you talk to patients. Now, also in the history, which I think is an important thing, and I use these analogies to help patients understand, especially the patients that come in with the MRI with the expectation that because it said they had a meniscus tear that they're there for an arthroscopy. You know, but when you have a patient that says, oh, my knee hurts at the end of the day, when I'm at rest, when I'm sitting... Uh, it's achy and stiff, but when I get up, it starts to loosen up and then I'm good for a while. You know, again, listening to those, those are all typical arthritic-like symptoms. You know, when you have a patient that says, I get pain um, when I'm standing and pivoting and twisting and I try to squat, but no, I don't get pain at rest. My pain goes away if I sit down. Um, Those are symptoms that more likely are meniscal in nature. So again, this is the important part of being a physician is that you're taking the history and listening for those buzzwords that might lead you towards a diagnosis on your differential list. And then you're incorporating the physical exam as to where they hurt. And then you're relating that to the x-ray appearance that you see and then making this decision. You know, If this patient's not a knee replacement, bone-on-bone arthritis, they may actually have a degenerative meniscus tear. Let's start with these simple things. Totally different when you have the 55-year-old that comes in with a locked knee and they have a big bucket handle. It does happen. I've seen it. But we're talking about more the degenerative meniscus tear. And then you're going through the oral medications, activity, maybe a cortisone injection. Get the MRI. So when I'm looking at the MRI, and again, um, I, I discuss a lot of this in my book. So again, I think it's a really helpful book for young orthopedic surgeons, uh, medical students, because you're going to see these patients in the office. And I offer a lot of these analogies in that book. But when you're looking at the MRI and ordering the MRI, I forewarn my patients, look, you are going to have a meniscus tear. I usually am going to be surprised if you do not just based on your age. But I, I say that radiologists are very black or white. A radiologist will say you're meniscus is normal or your meniscus is torn. They don't tell you, is that tear degenerative? Is it um, post-surgical change? Because if you've had the patient that had an arthroscopy eight years ago, they may have post-surgical changes that some radiologists may just read as a tear because it looks abnormal. But I explained to the patients that we're looking at it more of Does it look like a new tear? Does it look like a degenerative fraying type of tear? Does it look like an unstable tear? Does it look like a surgically correctable tear? And I specifically in my patients say, you know, it's rare at this age to have surgically fixable tears because they'll say, oh, my friend had their meniscus repaired. And again, young patients, yes. Our older patients, rarely do they have meniscus tears that are of the repairable nature. So I let these patients know I'm looking at the MRI and if I see the distinct line that it looks new, that there's a bucket handle, that there's a piece that's flipped upside down and backwards, you know, those are all things that to me, um, and as long as they correlate with where the symptoms are, indicate that I might be able to make you better by doing something arthroscopically because the other things that we've tried have failed. But if the entire meniscus is gone and extruded, um, I always tell those patients, like, 
that's already obsolete. Your arthritis is worse on the MRI than we see on the x-ray. You're a person that most likely would not get any relief after the arthroscopy and could get worse. You know, meniscus tear with horrible bone marrow edema or osteonecrosis. Again, yes, there's a meniscus tear, but probably not the source of the pain. This is usually more related to the osteonecrosis or the arthritis. And also, if there's just degeneration, I'll say it's like the back of your genes that are frayed, that, you know, we could trim it up, but it's not really causing a problem. It's not a new tear. So it's important for all of these patients to really understand that. And the last one that I explain to patients is the intrasubstance degeneration, where sometimes it's read as a tear, noted as intrasubstance degeneration, and you explain to the patients, these are ones you scope, you look at it on top and on bottom, it looks normal, but you can see on MRI that there's changes inside there, and that may be prone to tear, but you have to kind of let these patients know because they'll read the report and they'll fester over that. So if, again, I have a patient that doesn't have osteonecrosis, horrible bone marrow edema, horrible arthritis, they fail the conservative care measures, they do have an unstable looking meniscus tear, they have symptoms and a physical exam to match that. Those are patients that you operate on. Um, and I'm of that you know KISS philosophy, you know, keep it simple, stupid. I do a very, you know, straightforward sort of arthroscopy. I'm, I'm not a sports specialist. And again, I would do my scopes differently if I was treating a 20-year-old um, for diagnostic arthroscopy and they had a normal MRI. You know, I'm looking at a lot more things and doing a lot more stuff. Um, but I'd like a very simple setup. I'm not doing ACL reconstruction, so I'm not worried as much about leg position and dropping the leg to get good tunnel position. So for me, supine on the table, lateral post, um, I do pre-inject the knee with lidocaine with epinephrine for bleeding and pain control and inject the portals, but I only inject the portals just under the skin. If you inject into the joint through the portal sites, I find that that tends to blow up the fat pad and make it very difficult to see and visualize the knee. Um, and I, for me, I still use horizontals. I know a lot of the sports people and a lot of you know younger surgeons now, you know, verticals, I've been using horizontals my entire career. I was taught that way. I haven't had problems with them. So again, for me, it's nothing that I have an issue with with creating portals and visualizing, so I've just stuck with it. Um, when I go inside the knee, I keep it pretty simple. Look in the patellofemoral joint, I take a picture. Um, then I take a minimal amount of pictures. Uh, an older surgeon taught me this, um, again, in this patient population uh, a long time ago, and it was like, look, if you take six pages worth of pictures... Your patient is going to want you to go through every single picture with them in the office. And again, doing a diagnostic arthroscopy or something very specific, you may need to take a lot of pictures. But when we're talking about a patient who's 65, who's got a degenerative meniscus and a little bit of arthritis, keep it simple. So patellofemoral joint, but I'm still inspecting the facets, the trochlea, the medial lateral gutters, and I'm discussing those in my gross findings in my operative report. If they have a plica, is it rubbing? Is it abrading? Do I need to take that down? If so, take it down, take a picture before and after into the medial compartment. We'll be back after a quick break. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty, and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field, we've got something for everyone. 
And this is where I just dropped the you know leg onto my um, onto my hip, valgus the knee, and I'm looking. Okay, anterior body, posterior horn. Make sure I can see it. I don't always drive into the back of the knee. Again, older patients usually body um, tears. But if you have a younger patient, you have a piece that's posterior horn that's flipped up into the back. You may need to look in the back, and you may need to access it even with accessory portals. Um, and again, in my patients. I rarely have to use the biter because a lot of the meniscus is degenerative and the shaver does tend to work. But if I do need to use the meniscal biters, use the meniscus biters to make sure that I have a nice transition zone. If it's torn, you know, inspect the cartilage on the femur, on the tibia. Loose flaps, take them down. I'm not a huge fan of a little bit of the grade two, grade three, you know, fraying of taking a, a chondroplasty and taking the shaver and taking all that down. But, you know, loose flaps that are causing mechanical-like symptoms, catching and locking, take it down because someone's got a plica, big unstable meniscus tear, and a large chondral flap on the medial femoral condyle. All three of those can cause symptoms, so address those. You know, then I look over into the intercondylar notch, you know, make sure there's no large osteophytes, inspect the ACL, again, document it. Um, at, when you're in the medial compartment, document the cartilage weight-bearing inflection, document the tibial cartilage, and discuss whether or not those changes are anterior, posterior, weight-bearing, underneath the meniscus. And then once you've done your meniscectomy, you know, did you do a partial meniscectomy? Was it a subtotal meniscectomy? What portion of the body it was? Um, I park the probe at this point over. You know, if we're talking about patient's left knee, I'll park it onto the lateral aspect of the um, ACL uh, between that and the lateral femoral condyle. I'll drop the post, um, and I actually just very gently um, will varus the knee by putting the foot between my hip and the table and let that knee fall out. I rarely, in my patients, need to do a big figure four. Usually I find that this opens up the lateral compartment enough that I can put the camera in there and inspect the popliteus, inspect the meniscus, cartilage on the femur, tibia, and again, if torn, shaver. If the meniscus is harder, bulkier, healthier, then I will need to use the arthroscopic biters and trim it down to have a nice stable rim, take it before and after. So essentially, I've taken a picture of the patellofemoral joint, the medial compartment before and after, um, plica before and after if there was one, intercondylar notch, lateral compartment before and after, keep it simple. And that gives me usually just, if there's six uh, pictures per page, two pictures or two pages of pictures, um, we get two sets. One goes in the chart, uh, one goes to the patient at this point flush the knee, get all the stuff out of there, suck that knee dry, fill it up with a little bit more local, take out the scope. So I do put the local right through one of the scope portals um, and then close my portals. I still use a vertical mattress suture and I take that out in the office in two weeks. After surgery, weight-bearing is tolerated. I actually don't even routinely give out crutches to patients because I'm not doing microfracture, I'm not doing ACL reconstructions, I'm not doing meniscal repair on the vast majority of the patients I care for. So it's a meniscectomy, chondroplasty, synovectomy. These patients are weight-bearing as tolerated. I send them home on acetaminophen, 1,000 milligrams, Q8 for 72 hours minimum. They can extend it. Usually uh, Celebrex, 200 daily for three to seven days. And I would say one out of 20, one out of 30 if they still have pain, we'll call and we'll call them in a small prescription for something stronger. Um, but for the majority of patients, up early, range of motion, weight bearing is tolerated, scheduled acetaminophen, scheduled um, anti-inflammatory, they all tend to do well. So when they go home, and this is the board collection thing, is that what I would recommend in your board collection is print a third set of pictures. And the reason being that you might scan them into your system, you might work at a surgery center, and you might do other cases at a hospital, and your board collection period 
that one case that they pick, you need to you can't find the scope pictures. So what I did during board collection period is I had a third set of copies made, and I put them in an envelope, and I put that envelope in a special um, bin in my office. So this way, when board collection time came, that any of those cases that were picked, I was able to just to go in there and yes, these were my pictures. I didn't have to worry about chasing them down or worried, you know, were they actually scanned into the system after the surgery was over? Were they put into the chart? Um, so that might be something that you would consider. The other thing which I do want to share with you, and this is the other important sort of takeaway, is that I put the pictures in an envelope. And on the back of the envelope, I draw a couple things. So I draw like a sunrise merchant style view. I draw the patella and the trochlea. And if they have grade one or two or three or four changes, I'll put a little like two underneath the you know patella, maybe a three in the trochlea. And then I draw another picture of the basically the view of an AP knee. So the end of the femur, top of the tibia. Uh, and again, I will put, you know, zero through four if there's conjugal changes, medial femoral condyle, medial tibial plateau, lateral plateau. Um, if the ACL was absent, I'll even draw a little plica in there if it was there. Third picture is I'll draw a bird's eye view of the top of the tibial plateau and draw out the medial lateral meniscus and where there was a tear indicated and what I resected. So this way, when the patient comes back to the office, I most likely do not remember all the details in two weeks. So I say, did you bring your pictures? Yes, here's my pictures. Great, let's look at the envelope together. And I can very quickly on the back of the envelope say, here was your patellofemoral joint. This is your kneecap. This is your thigh bone. You have a little bit of arthritis. It's grade one here. It's grade two there. This is the end of your thigh bone shin bone. This is the inside of your knee. This is the outside. You have a little bit of arthritis here or there. Maybe you have this plica, which is a band of tissue. And then this is the bird's eye view of the top of your shin bone. This was the meniscus tear that you had. This is where the tear was. This is what I removed. And sometimes I'll draw a picture of the after of like, where that uh, portion of the meniscus is thinner because I've resected a portion of the meniscus. And this way, they have a very clear understanding. I didn't have to go through the details of my op note. And then we can pull out the pictures and I can point out, see this? This is the cartilage. This is normal cartilage over here. This is what arthritis looks like. See this? This was the tear that we talked about. This was before. This was after. Um, Here was the outside half of your knee. So it makes the office visit very simple. And I find that it makes the pictures a lot more understandable because you've given the patient sort of this overall picture in your drawing of what the knee looked like and what you saw and what you found. So when they look at that small close-up picture of the arthroscopy, they have a better understanding of what they're actually looking at. So just kind of my two cents, um, you know, I think the big takeaways again is that, you know, not all meniscus tears need surgery. Um, A lot of them may be incidental findings if someone did the MRI, especially if the patient's had three days of knee pain that they simply woke up with. So Walk that line cautiously. You know, make sure that you examine patients, get weight-bearing x-rays, do conservative care first, oral medications, strengthening weight loss if indicated, low-impact exercise, maybe formal physical therapy. If they failed oral anti-inflammatories or can't take oral anti-inflammatories, consider a cortisone injection. And again, these are all for patients that have pain and diffuse pain. It's not a locked knee that's not, you know, isolated pain on the meniscus. Um, after a traumatic twisting injury um, in a very healthy looking, say, 52-year-old knee. But you can try the conservative thing for the vast majority of these older patients. When you do your arthroscopy, keep it simple. You know, order the MRIs only when necessary. And then get a third set of pictures, um, if possible, when you're doing your arthroscopies uh, for your boards collection period. And then take the time to go through... um, 
the uh, the drawing on the envelope, or you know, if you do the drawings in your electronic medical record, you might actually do this all digitally too. Either way, kind of does the same idea. So I, I hope you can take a couple little tips and tricks away from all of that. Um, until next time, stay safe. Keep reading. For those of you that were at Academy, uh, I'm jealous. It looked like there was a lot of uh, fun stuff that uh, went on. And uh, I will keep working. So hopefully either the next uh, episode or the episode after that, I will be reviewing just a whole bunch of the different knee implants um, that I've used in my career and some of the little things that I've liked about certain systems and some of the things I haven't and what little tips and tricks I look for during surgery um, to try to get the best outcome for the patient with that knee implant system in my hands. I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Take care. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.